Hello, my name is Darren Williamson, and I'm one of the ministers here at Southwest Church of Christ, specifically um, directing the Northwest School of Discipleship that started up back in January and is beginning its ministry this year. And uh, I'm excited today to teach a little bit in the podcast, studying from the book of James. So take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And the name of the lesson for today, or the title of the lesson for today, is Standing Firm. You know, there is one thing that everybody who has lived very long at all in this life will agree with, is the statement that life often throws us difficulties. There are challenges. This life is not all a bed of roses. There are difficulties that come. And that's certainly true for the Christian life, for the life of someone who's going to follow Jesus Christ, because, well, if you're a follower of Jesus and they put him on a cross and they persecuted him and they said all kinds of things bad about him, Jesus said they're going to say the same things about you and some of you will be persecuted in a very similar way. And so we understand that this life is full of trials. And the book of James begins with a discussion of trials and that's why the lesson today is entitled, Standing Firm. So if you have your Bibles now, turn to James 1, verses 1 through 18, and then we'll read the text and then begin to teach through this important passage of Scripture. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is a great passage of scripture, beginning 
this wonderful little book of James. In the first section, um, there is this introduction, verses 1 through 8, where James introduces briefly uh, who he's writing to, and then he gets right into a topic that evidently was of great concern to his readers, and that is dealing with trials. As you may know, James, the person that the book is named after, is described himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that uh, from church tradition, church history, and from a likely um, way of reading um, the rest of the New Testament, that James, who wrote this letter, was the brother of Jesus. We know from the Gospels that Jesus had brothers and sisters, and um, James was one of them. And James was a, an important person in the life of the early church. If you want to go take a look at uh, Acts chapter 15, you can see uh, that James played a very important role in the, the church in Jerusalem. In fact, when they had one of the big debates about when the gospel began to go out to the Gentiles and make its way into non-Jewish communities, the big question that came up was, well, do these Gentiles also need to follow, follow the law of Moses, or, or, or do they not? Specifically circumcision and uh, obeying the Sabbath laws and the food laws and all that kind of thing. And it was a big discussion. And in Acts chapter 15, Council of Jerusalem is what it's called, the topic is debated, and it's James who seems to have um, a very strong voice in saying, no, the Gentiles uh, do not have to follow the law of Moses. And so here, this James is also now writing this letter addressed to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. This is probably a, a just a general way or a kind of a Jewish way of referring to um, the, the Jewish community specifically those who are followers of Jesus Christ, the Messianic Jewish community, who are spread all throughout the Roman word, world. The word dispersion uh, referred to uh, Jews who had left their homeland in Judea and had gone to places like Egypt or to Crete or to Greece or Rome or even some of them out to Spain, a lot of them into Asia Minor. And this was called the dispersion. And so when James says, I'm writing to all the 12 tribes in the dispersion, he's writing probably mainly to a Jewish Christian audience who are spread out in the hinterlands of the Roman Empire away from um, Judea. And he tells them in verses 1 through 8, and basically he starts off by addressing the issue of uh, trials. And the big takeaway point when you read this section of James for us is simply this, that God can bring good things from trials. Trials and difficulties are not necessarily something that we should always bemoan and be negative about. Instead, we look at them as an opportunity where God is doing something good. And there's different kinds of trials. It's interesting. He says, um, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Because there are various kinds of trials that we go through in this life. There's the everyday difficulties that happen. Maybe you could think of things like stubbing your toe or 
you know, backing into someone else's car and then you have to deal with all the difficulties related to that. And so maybe just everyday difficulties and trials that come when we're living in this mortal life. But then there might be things that I would call extraordinary trials, things where there is um, deep pain that comes into your life. Perhaps it's a, a child who has, you know, run away or, or a, uh, a person that you're close to has died unexpectedly and, and now there is a lot of pain that you're experiencing from that. Or maybe you uh, are very sick and uh, maybe you come close to death or you lose the ability to use some of your limbs or whatever. There's various trials that come to us that are what I would call extraordinary. And then finally, there is the trials that um, come because of persecution. And there's no question that in the early church, when you read the book of Acts, when you also read early church history, that Christians began to be persecuted almost from the beginning. The followers of Jesus were persecuted. The apostles, all of them, would give their life for the faith and be uh, punished for following Jesus. And so it's possible that the early church, that James writing here, uh, one of the things that he has in mind is um, religious persecution, being persecuted for your faith. Whatever the trials are, it doesn't really matter what exactly they are because there's a, a variety of them. It's more of the perspective that we're supposed to have toward them that really is the thing that James wants us to do. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And the reason that he can say this is he goes on to say that because for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You see, when we go through trials, if we stand firm in them, it produces something in us called steadfastness or perseverance. And that perseverance shapes our character in very, very good ways. And so he says, you can count it all joy, not that you're happy about it, not that you're like, oh, great, you know, I'm going through a difficult time and just kind of, you know, laugh it off. That's not what joy is. Joy is much deeper. Joy is this inner peace that you can have about a situation because you know that some good is going to come from it. And the Christian will look at different trials and tribulations as something that can shape his or her character and make them ready to be a perfect and mature vessel that God can use um, in, in what he is wanting to do in the world. And that's where our goal is. We want to let the trials produce steadfastness, and then we want that steadfastness to produce um, its full effect, to make us perfect and mature and complete in Christ. Kind of sounds like a, hot, a, a tall order, but it's something we can do. And if you look at people around you, especially older Christians who've gone through difficulties and made it through, they will tell you those things were not fun to go through, but they did shape and strengthen them. How did they make it through it? Well, one of the ways that we can endure trials and do it with joy is by seeking wisdom from God. And that's why I think he mentions the very next thing is if you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. You see, when we go through trials, 
There are different things we have to decide what we're going to do. How are we going to handle it? Decisions that have to be made. And some of them may be faithful decisions. Some of them may show a lack of faith. But we must bring everything to God's presence and say, Lord, help me with this. Uh, what should I do in the midst of these trials? Um, and trust that God will give uh, you wisdom. And so that is a key um, way to deal with the trials that we have, is to pursue God and ask Him for wisdom about how uh, to deal with it. But we've got to do so with a particular kind of approach. Now, and that approach is twofold. First of all, we have got to remember God's nature. God is generous. He is willing to give wisdom, and he does so without reproach. He has lots and lots of wisdom in his heart, in his mind, and in who, his being, and he's willing to give that to us. So God, we can approach him with confidence. And then number two, though, we've got to expect that he will give us wisdom. Um, evidently, God is just not happy with someone who's like, oh, come give me something, but in the back of their heart, they really aren't sure he's going to give it to them. James says that's a double-minded person and you should not expect to get anything from God. Instead, have absolute confidence. God will give me wisdom about the situation that I'm in. I, I know he will give wisdom because it is who he is to impart that to those who seek it. So, so James says, seek it with uh, a full confidence and with a uh, with believing that God really is going to give it. All right, the second section here kind of moves us into what's an interesting component of the book of James, and that is some kind of dialogue and teaching about rich people and poor people. And of course, we don't know the exact situation that was behind the book of James, and the fact that it was sent kind of out to lots of different churches would make it a little bit uh, sketchy to say, well, we know exactly what was behind it. So you, we don't want to mirror read too much into the text. But clearly, there's something going on with rich people and poor people. It shows up multiple times in the book of James. And so here in this section in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. James wants his readers to know from the beginning, poor people, you are valued to God. In fact, you should rejoice in that lowly position because you might not have any money, but you are super rich in God. And then also rich people, do not boast in who you think you are because God actually um, will humiliate those who trust in their riches and um, do not trust in him. We might suggest that if you look back in, in chapter 5, there is this scathing rebuke of rich people who are withholding the wages from their workers. And so it's tempting to, to think, well, maybe that's one of the trials that the early Christians are going through. Some of them have been oppressed by rich bosses, uh, rich masters, um, and literally the trial that they're dealing with is the fact that they worked for a whole month and their boss has not paid them and they can't feed their children. Now, that's the kind of trial that would really test me. Uh, if you can't feed your family and your boss is withholding your pay from you. Uh, and so James 
uh, may be addressing people who have those kinds of, of challenges. And from the beginning here, he says to the rich, guess what? Uh, you are like the grass of the field or the flower of the field. It's here for a little bit and then gone. But the main thing we all need to be rich toward is God. And remember, we have a short time on this life and then we meet our maker. And so rich people, watch out. And then he goes on to talk about uh, in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. He kind of returns to this idea of steadfastness under trial. And it's a reference to the fact that when you stand firm, there is a great reward that you have. Uh, the crown of life, what a wonderful image of those who finish the race faithfully. And there is this idea of there is a crown awaiting us. We, we see in the book of Revelation, this beautiful scene of elders who are casting their crowns before um, the Lord because uh, of how great uh, he is. And, and it's kind of the sense that they've already received their crown, but even that crown they lay down at his feet because he's so wonderful. And James seems to be referring to this crown that is given to us when we finish the race and we are steadfast. But we've got to do so through the trials that we experience. God has promised a crown of life to those who love him. But then in verse 13, we get to some things related to the nature of God himself. And when you're reading the Bible, one of the best things that you can always be asking is, what does this text say about God's nature? Because the Bible is about many things, but the most fundamental thing that it is about is God. Who is God? The God that we need to know and love and serve is on display in the Bible. So what does this passage say about God? And James says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. When you're in temptation... When you're going through the trial related to a, a temptation to sin, for example, the one thing you cannot do is point the finger at God. You know, there's that old saying, I think it came out of the 70s, that, you know, the devil made me do it. Um, it's even, uh, that's uh, pushing the blame away from yourself, which we'll see in a minute, really belongs with you in, interiorly. But it's even worse if you were to point the finger at God and say, he sent these trials to me because he wants me to sin. That is to misunderstand badly the nature of God. You see, because God is on our side. He doesn't want anyone to sin. He's not trying to make people sin. He's not throwing temptations our way. That is, he's not tempted by evil, and he's not going to turn around and tempt us as well. That's not who God is. If we have trials that come our way, if we have difficulties that come to us, it could be that God is allowing us to endure those for the sake of our spiritual growth or for a sake of discipline to draw us back to himself, but he is not in the business of trying to make people sin. That is against his nature. And so let us not, when we go through trials, point our finger at God and uh, accuse him of something evil. That's simply not part of his nature. Instead, we need to look down deep. He talks about the nature of sin and temptation. There is within us this desire for something that is forbidden, something that is sinful. And then there is this process by which that simple desire begins to grow into sin itself. 
And it's interesting, James uses the language of, uh, of a child in the womb. There is conception that takes place, and then there is a growth that takes place in the child in the womb, and then finally it gives birth and, and so forth. And he uses that analogy to say that, you know, there's this desire within us, you're enticed by your own desires, and then that eventually gives birth to sin when it's full-blown resulting in death. This is a very long topic and worth discussing, but we must remember that within us, there is a sinful inclination that has been passed on through the ages. Not that our nature has necessarily changed with Adam and Eve, but we have 3,000 years plus of culture, or more than that, of human beings in rebellion against God. And we learn it from a very young age to be drawn to things that are wicked and evil, and it is within us, and we've got to challenge it, we've got to fight against it, and one of the best things that we can do is is acknowledge that there is within me, as Paul says in Romans 7, a desire to do the wrong thing, and I've got to say no to that, and not let it grow into where it gives birth to actual sin. But we certainly do not point our finger at God. James says in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. What a beautiful, memorizable passage of Scripture. Don't be deceived. Remember, every good and perfect gift is from our Heavenly Father. Every single one. And we can give Him thanks and praise for all the good things that we have in this life because even though we may have contributed somehow to that good thing coming about, ultimately God is the one who gives every good gift. It comes down from above from our Heavenly Father. And He makes this statement about God's nature is such that He doesn't change. He's not for us one day and against us the next day. He's not um, kind of, uh, he doesn't change and shift around. Have you ever had a friend that whenever you would get together with them, you never knew which friend they were going to be? Were they going to be the jovial, fun guy or the serious, you know, kind of downcast person? Uh, I've had friends like that before and and, you know, you never knew, really knew which one you were going to get until you started talking to him. But here's the thing with God. He is steadfast. He is faithful. He is always for us. He is always seeking our good. And we can trust that every good gift is from him. The greatest gift of all, of course, is that he brought us into new life. He gave birth to us. He made us into new creations through his son, Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, this passage has lots for us to dwell on. Going back to the beginning, just remember, we can deal with every trial that we experience with joy because we know that if we endure it, it will produce steadfastness. And our goal is to let that steadfastness produce in us maturity in faith. Also, it's a good reminder that wealth and riches are here today and gone tomorrow. They really are like the grass of the field. They're like that flower. And I'm looking out my window right now, looking at some flowers that next week will be gone because the sun is going to scorch them and burn them up. 
And so that's the way riches are. And so we should, if we have them, great, use them for God, but don't put any trust in them. And certainly don't view them as some kind of sign that God loves you more than he loves uh, the poor brother or sister um, around us. But most of all, in this whole section, let us keep our eyes out for God's nature and who God really is, his loving nature, his steadfast nature, the fact that he doesn't want us to sin. He's rooting for us, not against us. And, and even these trials that we deal with on a daily basis, those extraordinary ones, and even the trials that may come because of our faith can be endured. And it's our job as Christians to be steadfast to the end, uh, knowing that we will receive a crown of life that God will give to those who love him. Have a great week. Enjoy uh, studying the Bible with your families and growing in your knowledge of God's Word.